the National Archives podcast series, When a Woman is Not a Woman, How the Ministry of Pensions Constructed Gender in the 1950s, presented by Dr. Louise Chambers. This event was recorded on the 9th of November 2011 as part of the Diversity Week event at the National Archives, Q. Right, when is a woman not a woman? What I'm particularly interested in is the kind of, there's a paradox basically, I think, in our culture between the apparent fixity of sex and gender on the one hand and the apparent fluidity when you actually delve into these issues on the other. And what I want to demonstrate today is that fluidity and to show you that particularly when you're dealing with bureaucracy, somebody's gender doesn't seem to be quite as fixed as perhaps we all think it is. And also we seem to slide between sex and gender. Sex and gender are two different terms. And when you begin to make sense of some of the documentation that I'm going to be talking about today, I hope that shift and that sliding becomes a bit more obvious to you all. Some of you may be familiar with Magritte's famous surrealist painting, a very old kind of French pipe, and underneath it says, Ceci n'est pas une pipe, this isn't a pipe. And when I was doing this work, I saw this picture of April Ashley, and I had that picture in mind when I was doing the work and thinking, well, she's both a woman and not a woman at the same time. And so I've used this caption underneath her picture, Ceci n'est pas une femme, because sometimes April's a man and sometimes she's a woman. And the reason I mention April Ashley is because the shadow of the case that finished up in court in 1970 hangs over this whole this whole presentation, as we'll see. I'm a big fan of a historian and philosopher called Michel Foucault, who died in 1984. But he was also interested in sex, gender, and sexual orientation, among other things. He was a psychiatrist. He trained in the French School of Psychiatry in the 1950s and then finished it up lecturing on psychiatry and later on uh, what, what we academics call critical theory in the 60s and 70s. And this is one quote of his which I think is quite a useful background for what we are looking at today. He says, if you're not like everybody else, then you're abnormal. If you're abnormal, then you're sick. These three categories, not being like everybody else, not being normal and being sick, are in fact very different, but have been reduced to the, to the same thing. And one thing that Foucault was interested in is, is the regulation of people's identities, race, sex, sexual orientation, disability, and so on and so forth. And a lot of us, and certainly when I first came across his work, I thought regulation was mainly through parliament and through government and through law. Foucault's argument is very different, and he argues that a lot of regulation occurs almost by accident, and it often occurs through bureaucracies and paperwork and the need to be efficient and effective and save money and all of that. And I want to demonstrate today that this seems to be the way that gender became fluid through the 50s, 60s, and 70s through this bureaucratic control of people's lives. When I first saw the file that all of this paperwork comes from, it looked like a fairly innocuous file. It had the uh, chief insurance officer on the front of it. And, and then in very small writing, in handwriting, it just had the word transvesticism. And 
being who I am, I was quite curious about what that was all about. So I um, began to delve into the file and found between 1954 and 1956 a whole bunch of applications by ordinary people who wanted to change the gender on their national insurance card. And I explain in a minute what that card is and what it was for. And nobody quite could understand where all of these applications had come from and why they'd come at this particular time. And for me, because I love history, I was quite curious, what is it about that moment, the sort of mid-1950s, that was producing all of these applications? And again, with my Michel Foucault hat on, Foucault has this way of looking at history. Instead of asking why things happen, he asks under what conditions did they happen? What exactly were, was the situation in the mid-1950s that not so much caused but produced all of these um, applications? So over the course of the next hour or so, I want to look at a number of things. First of all, what was the problem that the ministry um, was having to deal with. Secondly, under what conditions were these applications being received and how did they relate to the regulation of people's sex? Thirdly, the temporary solution that they came up with to try and deal with the problem. Then the impact of Corbett versus Corbett, and this is where April Ashley came in. Corbett versus Corbett was the case that was heard in 1970, and as I'll explain later, had quite a devastating effect for all people who identify as trans or transgender. And then consider the aftermath, and I want to finish up with a very recent case involving a woman, transsexual woman called Christine Timbrell, who turned the whole argument upside down, the one that had been going for about 30 years suddenly was turned upside down. This is my dramatis personae. These are all the chaps, and they are all chaps as well, from the, the Ministry of Pensions and National Insurance. I did love this picture. I don't know how it got online, but I googled Ministry of Pensions and National Insurance just to get their logo. And I got this wonderful cottage with sheep and cows and stuff. Uh, and I don't quite know how that came to be or where that comes from, but I, I just couldn't resist it. So you're going to hear these names as we go through, and I thought it would be quite useful just um, to explain who they all are. So you've got Messrs. DCH Abbott, WHM Clifford, A.G. Morgan, and A.J.A. Compton, and they are all, well, chaps who work at the Ministry of Pensions and National Insurance at the time these applications were coming in. H.P. Jerry is the Deputy Chief Insurance Officer. I'm not sure what happened to the Chief Insurance Officer. He never turns up in any of this. <laughs> I set right at the end of the story to hear an appeal. Uh, Dr. Collins, again only a deputy, so clearly trans people weren't important enough to get the guy in charge. They only get a deputy. So we've got the deputy chief medical officer and a guy called Julian James who's at Guy's Hospital. Okay, so to outline the problem then. In the mid-1950s, there was a large influx. And when I say large, I mean 20 or 30, which is large in to relation to transgender people. A large influx of application, applications to change the gender on a person's national insurance card. And this was the response by DCH Abbott. And this is the 18th of April, 1955. He says, the insurance card is, in effect, a passport to employment. It is extremely difficult, if not impossible, for him or her 
to get employment unless they can have an insurance card appropriate to the sex which has been adopted. So in other words, if I turn up for a job or if I turned up for a job in 1955 and handed my, my insurance card over to my employer, they would expect to see the sex, the person standing before them to be consonant in some way with the sex that's put on the national insurance card. It's a bit like these days, if you turned up with a birth certificate and you handed it to an employer and it said female, they'd expect to see a woman standing in front of them. They might be a bit odd or put, feel a bit odd or put out if, if there was a man there instead. And so what Abbott decided to do was to try and get some medical information to try and find out why it was that these people, these strange people, were asking to change their gender on their national insurance card. And DCHO, we don't see what Collins wrote, but we, we get a report on what Collins said from DCH Abbott. And he says, the deputy chief medical officer has obtained from the person's medical advisor a very helpful opinion. On the strength of this, we have agreed to the issue of cards appropriate to a sex different from that officially recorded on the person's birth certificate. And it might be proper to treat them as that sex for pension entitlement. Now, there are two ways of regulating gender just in that statement. The first is the birth certificate. So day you're born, your doctor, midwife, or whoever is, is delivering you is asked, is it a boy or a girl? And they, they look at the genitalia and they make a decision. That tends to be how these things work. Unless your genitalia are unusual, and I'll come back to that later, but for, for the vast majority of us, you, you do a sight test, basically. If it's got a penis, it's a boy. If it's got a vagina, it's a girl. End of story. And that's what goes on the birth certificate. Now, back in the 1950s, birth certificates weren't quite as kind of solidified as they are now. And if you could persuade a clerk in the registry office, which is what April Ashley did, that you're not a man or a woman anymore and that the birth certificate is incorrect, they used to change it unofficially. And they used to change your records, and then you could carry on living in the opposite gender to what was originally on your birth certificate. So things were quite fluid. And they were also quite fluid in terms of people's national insurance cards. So if there was enough evidence from the doctor to say this person is now living as a woman or as a man, then they would issue a national insurance card in the sex that you appeared to be living in. So that you've already got two regulators of, of, of sex or gender. One is the birth certificate and the other is what's on the national insurance card. And, and there's some informality around that. The ability to change the, the sex on these um, two official documents is, is open to, to not so much misuse, but they can be changed. And the other regulator of sex is the medical profession. Hence, they seek medical advice. And if the doctor says it's true, hey, it must be true. And if you think about it, that's the form of regulation we had the day the baby's born. The doctor or the midwife says this is what it is, therefore that's what it is. So you've already got three different kinds of regulation going on. So hooray, somebody's made a fairly sensible and I think enlightened decision to say, okay, if the doctor says this person is now living as a man or living as a woman, we're quite happy with that. So we'll allow this change to take place. 
But it also means, and I know this has changed now, but it also means if you're a man who's becoming a woman, you can now retire at 60. And if you're going the other way, if you're born a woman and you are now living as a man, you're going to have to wait another five years to, until you retire. Now, the other thing that you need to know is at the time in the 1950s, because men are working longer, they have to pay bigger contributions. And so the, in terms of the, the national insurance contributions being paid, women are paying less than men. And that's worth keeping in mind. Because I've got at the bottom of the screen MTFFTM. Now, MTF means male to female, and FTM means female to male. Now, a lot of people uh, will be surprised to hear this, but there was an imbalance, not of trans women, but trans men. There were more women living as men than men living as women. And I would imagine there's a whole discourse around sexual orientation and lesbianism in particular well, that might account for the fact that women who love other women are living as men because it's just a bit easier that way. Maybe. I don't know. That's just a guess. I need to do some research. But statistically, there are a lot more men women living as men than men living as women. So from the point of view of the Treasury, this is a really good decision. <laughs> because A, they're getting more money in terms of contributions, and B, the women, formerly women, now living as men, have got to work another five years. And the, that's another regulator of gender, money. And the fact that it's in the interests of the Treasury to allow this to happen. So this is a financial decision as well as medical and bureaucratic. So sex is being regulated in different ways through the medical profession, through the birth certificate, through the uh, national insurance card and through the interests of the treasury. And that's really why I say sex and gender aren't as fixed as people like to think. So, okay, we're gonna let these go through. So a bit of applause there. So this, this goes on for a while. This whole process lasts for about 10 years. So whilst these 10 years are going by, I just want to try and explain what Foucault means by conditions of possibility. What was it about this period of the early 50s that was making this happen? Now the first thing that you need to be aware of is an, the, uh, an act that was passed in 1946 as part of the whole process of introducing what people now call the welfare state. It was called the National Insurance Act. It was actually enacted in 1948. Now in 1911, the idea of paying national insurance was first introduced, but it wasn't, it was, it, for some employers it was voluntary, um, and it wasn't enforced very well. What you see on the right-hand side of the screen there is a national insurance card for the Siemens, uh, if you're a sailor, basically. And what you can see on the left is the new card that was introduced in 1948. And there is one difference on there that took me a while, and it's a bit obvious once you know it, but it took me a while to realize what it was. I, anyone see it? It does say girl on it. And this, there's no, on the 1911 cards, and the cards issued between 1911 and 1946, as far as I've been able to find out, there is no gender on there. But on the new card, there is a gender. 
Now, obviously, when that person reaches the age of majority, they wouldn't be a girl. They would then say woman. But the gender is there on these cards. And you have to carry one of these cards if you want a job. Now, I'm sure there were employers, there always are, aren't there, who've ignored all the bureaucracy. But for most people, if you wanted work, you had to give your employer this card when you started work to prove that you were paying your national insurance contributions because of uh, the fact we now have pensions, we have um, sick absence payments, and so on and so forth. So in order to protect the individual and to protect the finances of the country, we had to be paying in these stamps. And all employed or employable people had to carry one of these cards. It was a bit like having, having a, almost a passport to a job, which I think is what one of the guys said earlier. So you've got this mandatory card, and it's got a person's sex on it. And this is introduced in, in 1946. And just the, this, this picture just shows, if, if people are listening to the podcast, just Google National Insurance Card, which is all I did. And I, by pure coincidence, this is cards come from 1954, which is when these applications started coming in. And this is a stamp that's stuck on the card to prove that you are paying your stamps. So those are the, if you like, the bureaucratic conditions. These are the medical conditions. In the 1940s, the, what we saw for the first time was the creation of synthetic hormones, estrogen and testosterone, which helps in the whole kind of um, gender reassignment from uh, F to M or M to F. They didn't actually get FDA. FDA is the Federal Drugs Administration in the United States, and they didn't get approval for these drugs until the early 1950s. I never know if that's Giles or Gillies, but it's anyway, as a chap, Sir Harold Gillies is, is, is his full title, and he developed this really clever technique called flap surgery, which enabled him to enable them to, as it were, grow a penis um, through taking skin grafts from their legs and their backside, um, and kind of, I, I always think of it like a, um, a, a roll, a flaky pastry roll. <laughs> Sorry. But he actually tested this on um, a female-to-male tran trans person called, uh, originally called Laura Dillon. Laura became Mike Michael. And I understand this was the first successful use of this technique in the mid-1940s. In 1949, David O'Corwell published something called Psychopathia Transsexualis. And this is really the first time that the word transsexual is being used in um, medical terms and being used to distinguish transvestites, who are supposedly people who just uh, cross-dress, from transsexuals, who are people who actually want to live permanently in the opposite gender to the one that they were given when they were born. So there's this distinction being made, which wasn't being made before, between transsexuals and transvestites. 1940, sorry, 1953, so George, uh, sorry, Dr. George Burrow pioneered, um, but basically, uh, vaginoplasty that involved the inversion of the penis. Before that, as I understand it, the penis used to be removed. Um, but what this guy did was say, well, we might as well make use of this thing. Um, and so they, <laughs> again, Sorry, those of you who just had lunch, but basically they kind of hollow the thing out and then push it inwards. Fortunately, men have a big gap behind their pelvis where you can push, turn the penis 
and I mean in a very literal way, inside out. So you've got a a, a, an artificial vaginal canal rather than a penis. This was pioneered by Baru in, um, in Casablanca. And I understand, although again, I haven't found any information to prove this, that not, not Baru, because I'll be done for liable, but there were a number of surgeons involved in this surgery who were working in the camps, in the prison camps, the concentration camps, testing these techniques on Jewish and gay prisoners during World War II. And they were whisked out of these camps when, when certain authorities realized what they could do and the skills they had, they were whisked out of these camps and, and quietly taken off to clinics where they could perform this surgery on paying customers. So a lot of these techniques, I have to tell you, were perfected during World War II, either by people like uh, Sir Harold Gillies working with soldiers or other less more infamous people, let's say, working with people in concentration, well, working with experimenting on people in concentration camps. So this whole area of transsexual surgery has quite a nasty history behind it. And this is why all of this stuff, I think, is coming out post-war. In 1953, Dr. Harry Benjamin, who's incredibly famous in transsexual circles, published this, basically it's a Bible of gender reassignment. It was published in 1953. Benjamin had been using hormone treatments since the late 1940s, and this is in use today. This is still used by medical staff as a rough guide to gender reassignment. And then finally, socio, what I call socio-cultural conditions, which is kind of what the general public is aware of. I, I should say, I grew up in the 60s. I knew I was a girl, but I didn't know what, what, what a tranny a tranny to me was, a, was the thing I carried around with me, list of music on, right? Um, it, was, it was short for transistor radio. And we used to talk about trannies in the 60s and 70s quite innocently because it was our radio. So I got a shock in the 80s when I realized it was also being applied to a wholly different, different idea. So there wasn't much in the way of role models at this time, but two things happened. The first was the outing of a woman called Christine... Jürgensen, who was a Danish model, very, very beautiful model. And she was outed by the New York Daily News, and you can see the headline, XGI becomes blonde beauty, blah, blah, blah. And she was the first, if you like, famous, the, the first well-known trans woman to be suddenly the focus of all this attention. The following year, a woman, Reversa Cowell, um, decided... I, and I would imagine, following the outing of Christine Jorgensen, that she better get her story out before somebody else did. So she published her a, a kind of very quick thumbnail sketch of her life in, in Picture Post. And then the following year, and you can still buy this if you're interested, she published her autobiography. Christine Jorgensen started life as a GI, and uh, Roberta Cowell started life as an Air Force pilot during World War II. So they... Uh, there's something about being in the military, I think, that changes people. Anyway, so the, you know, the point is that the, the medical, uh, the ability to change people's gender has now been established medically. You've got the, the role models, if I can call them that, people like Roberta Cowell and, um, and Christine Jorgensen. So the public now know all about this. And what I suspect, uh, and I'm only guessing, but what I suspect is there must have been trans people in the UK and elsewhere who are thinking, right, 
it's okay to come out, it's okay to be me, because people know what a transvestite is, because these, th these two people have had this kind of publicity. And if you put this alongside the requirement to have your sex on your um, national insurance card, then I think this is what's brought about these, all of these applications. I'm happy to be contradicted. So as I said, this, you've got to bear in mind there was no policy. I'm a civil servant, just about. I love policy, right? We all love policy. And if you haven't got a policy for some, something, you've got a bit of a problem. So they haven't got a policy, but they've got some kind of guide to, to decide how to deal with this stuff. Then, as I said, in 1958, there's a bit of a wobble. Two things happen. One is the applications increase. The second is we're getting more and more people saying, I want to live as a woman. And this is beginning to change the financial balance. Sorry, I'm terribly cynical. <laughs> so um, our friend Clifford writes again to Dr. Collins, whom we met before, on the 10th of October, 1958, and says the department will proceed to issue Dr. M. So I've, I've had to just use people, the trans people's initials because some of them might still be alive with a female card, but the question of entitlement to benefits, and in particular pension, is a matter for the statutory authorities who will decide the question in the light of circumstances at the time. Now, I've highlighted that in red because this is going to come back and bite everybody in the bottom later on when these people reach 60. Because bear in mind, the, the balance is now shifting. We're getting more and more applications from men who want to live as women they're going to retire five years earlier. They'll be, they won't be paying national insurance contributions at the same rate. They'll be paying, paying at a lower rate. So what these slightly crafty civil servants have decided to do is put off the big question in, in the hope that either they get promoted or they'll be working for another department. <laughs> Sorry, I am a bit cynical. But that's, that turns out to be a really dangerous thing to do. The letter goes on, it is however as well to state categorically that the proposed issue of a female insurance card to a known male person, and notice how this language has changed slightly. We're saying we accept we, that there is now a contradiction between what's on the card and what's on the person's birth certificate. Um, and this involves a complete disregard by the department of the requirements of the law. However, Whilst it's still in our financial interest, we'll carry on doing it. And then H.E. Morgan on the 17th of March, 1959, and notice the differences in dates. It takes them six months to figure all this out. H.E. Morgan says, individuals concerned often have suicidal tendencies and distressing histories, and the ministry should not put itself in the position of making life still more difficult for them. Now, I think that's rather good and I rather like H.E. Morgan, because the doctors are clearly saying that trans people are under quite a lot of pressure, as it is. And I don't know if you know, but the suicide rate at the time among trans people was about 50%. So about half the trans people killed themselves. That might be why there's so few of us around, um, because that suicide rate has remained constant up, up until quite recently. So. They're, they're obviously, again, still quite enlightened and showing some concern for the well-being of, of the people who are making these applications. 
But he's, he does cover his back a little bit because he says, I understand that a similarly liberal attitude is taken by other government departments. So they're doing it, so we can do it. So again, the, the, where, where sex gets interesting here is we've now got this shift between sex and gender. And what I would argue is what you get on your birth certificate is your sex because it's based on your physicality. It may be they have to do hormonal and chromosomal tests, but it's still physicality. But what's going on that insurance card is what they're being faced with in terms of the way the person's looking, what they're wearing, conversations they have with their doctor about their lifestyle, and that's really what gender's about. So what you've got here is a duality. The person's sex is one thing, but their lived gender is another thing. And for the moment, the ministry is allowing this to happen. They're allowing the fact that the national insurance card is different from what's being shown on the birth certificate. Now, things start to get a dodgy in the mid-1960s, which is supposed to be the time of freedom and enlightenment, isn't it? And everybody's having a good time down Carnaby Street, but then trans people are not having such a good time because the pension applications are coming in. Da -da -da. So this, this document appears 18th of December 1964. A chap called H.P. Jerry is now dealing with Miss H's pension application. And what I'm saying here is that they're beginning, beginning to be aware of the language of gender which is coming into play. And Jerry says, it seems to me we must have some cogent proof of the change of sex. And it would appear that the best way of doing this is to get AJ's consent to our obtaining a report from Guy's Hospital. He says there's no evidence on papers of a physical change of sex and it seems to be a case of transvestism. Now that is, that is the word that's being used. We don't use that word these days. It's a bit too much of a mouthful. We just say transvestism. So the, the extra TI has disappeared. What they seem to be saying is, well, if you haven't physically changed sex, we're not sure if we really believe that you are now a different sex. And A.J. Compton, on the 28th of January 1965, said, the dangers of the department policy, and they don't really have a policy, to be honest, which in effect postpones the difficulty of dealing with such a case and passes the responsibility to the insurance officer, we are now faced with precisely the problem he envisaged. So you remember six years earlier, they said, let's put this decision off. The day to put this decision off is, is now here. Um, we can't put it off any longer. We've got to do something. However, what helps them is the, what I call the invention of the transsexual, who is different from a person who is considered to be a transvestite. Because this question is asked by Compton, can we actually distinguish different forms of gender variance? And he says the transvestite cases, that is the case of an unhappy person, unhappy person, how does he know, who has all or nearly all the physical characteristics of one sex, but the instincts, emotions, and mental makeup of the other. So again, sex, gender, the physical characteristics of the sex, but the instincts, the emotions, and the mental makeup, that's the gender bit. He says the insurance officer, of course, is only interested in the sex. In other words, for pension purposes, we don't care what you look like or how you behave. What we want to know is what's on your birth certificate and cannot have any regard to the psychological sex. So there's another splitting off taking place. And there's a popular conception that transsexuals are people who have a female mind in a male body 
or a male mind in a female body. You've, you've all heard that. That's what he's getting at, that there's a difference between the physical and the psychological sex. Once the true sex has been determined, he has no option but to decide accordingly. So the job now is we've got to find out this person's true sex, and I put that in quotes. And so let's look at the birth certificate. Now he's gone back to being the guarantor of true sex. And Compton says, if the birth certificate shows Miss H to have been registered as male, medical advice must be obtained to establish whether he is now a man passing as a woman or whether a mistake was made as to his sex at birth. And so that they go back to the medics for some advice. Those of you who are not medically minded are going to love this language. <laughs> and I've got about two minutes to explain what all this means. So this comes from, this is, a, this is a report, it's about five pages. It comes from Dr. Julian James at Guy's Hospital, sent to AJA Compton. And this sets out three different conditions. Now, the first one is hermaphroditism. Most of you might know this just from general knowledge. And a hermaphrodite is a person who has both male and female reproductive organs and is therefore able to reproduce themselves without any intervention from anybody else. In other words, you can have sex with yourself, conceive your own child, and produce it all in one smooth motion, in theory. Now, no human being, as far as we know, has ever done that. It's a theory, because people who have been identified and labeled hermaphrodites have always been either infertile or sterile. So whether that's a quirk of nature, we don't know, but there is no such thing strictly speaking, as an hermaphrodite human being. But there are people born with dual reproductive systems. Pseudo-hermaphroditism is what we now call people who are intersex. This is people who are born usually with genitalia, and it's not very clear whether it's a boy or a girl. So the, the newborn baby could have quite a large clitoris, or it looks almost like a small penis and a vagina together, or they could ha have been born with a penis and no testicles. There are various different um, so-called syndromes and disorders that people have. Some are seen straight away when a baby's born. Others develop during puberty. So there's one called and androgen insensitivity syndrome, or AIS, which you only become aware of when the person reaches the age of 10 or 11. But all of these forms of intersex conditions are, were then described as pseudo-hermaphroditism. Pseudo and then transvestitism. And this is described in this way. It is only in the established, that is, the probably irreversible cases, that there may be something to the issue of an insurance card in the name of the adopted sex so as to enable the person to lead the normal working life of the elected sex. Now, if you know anything about transsexuality, that's a description now of a modern transsexual, not a transvestite. So this doctor didn't really know his stuff, to be honest. But he did offer a note of caution. He said, having assisted these people, isn't that horrible language, these people? Having assisted these people to carry on a useful life, isn't that kind of him? <laughs> having assisted these people to carry on a useful life in the inherent role by matching their contributions to the compulsive sex, we should not expose them because they continue the long-established perversion, as I said, lovely language, on the day of their 60th or 65th birthday. Now, what he's basically saying is, if I um, was working as a woman 
and I reach my 60th birthday and I've got mail on my birth certificate, on the, the day after my 60th birthday, I'm still at work and everybody's saying, shouldn't you have retired? And it would look a bit odd, wouldn't it? And equally, if somebody's working as a man and on their 60th birthday they get a letter saying, you can now retire, again, that's going to look a bit odd. So what James is, uh, Dr. James is saying is that we need to give people a pension that is consonant with their sexed identity. And if we don't do that, they're going to be found out no matter how much they pass when they're at work. The matter's now getting urgent because that day that they put off has arrived and there are now 120 pensions applications pending. That's a lot of problems to be faced with, believe me you, if you're trying to figure out how to formulate a policy to deal with this matter. Because a lot of these applicants are now past the age of 60 and they're saying, where's my pension? You're quite right too. So we get a decision-making process. First of all, they say clearly and unequivocally the National Insurance Card cannot replace the birth certificate. End of story. But because we've been prevaricating for so long, we're going to give Miss H her pension, definitely, the age of 60. So again, can you see how this regulation is going on? And now the only thing that's forcing their hand is time. So time becomes a regulator, as well as money and bureaucracy and everything else. And they decide they need another meeting. And they try to put together a form of wording to which they can send to the minister for approval. Can you see how long this is taking? So this first meeting, the decision to have another meeting, is made in June 1965. The next time anything is raised is March 1966. So imagine these poor people waiting for their pensions, must be getting a little bit cross and anxious by now. And there's this strange note on the file. I wondered how an insurance officer would know whether a particular case involved transvestism or change of sex. Now this is the first time there's been a split between talking about transvestites and talking about people who actually want to change their sex. And this is 1965. So it's the first time on the file there's this distinction between a transvestite and a transsexual. And between 1966 and 1970, all this prevarication goes on. You see these letters going back and forth. Nobody making a decision. Nobody's come up with wording acceptable to the minister, so the minister's not been advised on anything. And they're dealing with each case on what they call an extra statutory basis. And what that means is they send the papers to the Treasury and say, you make a decision. And the Treasury are making a decision based on every individual case. So we've got another regulator, which is a person at the Treasury who's trying to figure out what to do. Regulation all over the place. Wonderful. Who said sex was fixed? Eh? Okay, so we postpone the decisions. And then comes the thing that changes everything. So for those of you who don't know, on the 2nd of February 1970, the High Court in London, Ormrod J. granted a decree of nullity to Arthur Corbett, who was married to April Ashley. April had undergone gender reassignment surgery way back in 1961 in Casablanca. And this chap that she married, Arthur Corbett, Lord Arthur Corbett, who had a fair bit of money and a nice big estate, entered into a marriage with April knowing full well what her gender history was. But as far as Arthur was concerned, she was a woman. 
And she, as I said earlier, she was able to change her documentation so when they appeared at, at the registry to register their marriage, she was able to show that she was a woman, he was a man, and therefore they could get married. This rather nasty man, Mr. Corbett, Lord Corbett, decided when the marriage went pear-shaped that he didn't want April to have any of his money. And so he decided rather viciously, I thought, to say, to claim that when April married him, she was a man, and therefore the marriage couldn't be consummated. And if you can show that, I don't know if you know, um, if you can show in a divorce court, or in a family court, as they're now called, that your marriage has never been consummated, the court issues what's called a decree of nullity. It nullifies the marriage and says it never existed in the first place. And that left April completely penniless. And the judge basically said during the hearing, and the, you, you can see the account online, you could see the whole judgment if you're interested, he basically said, to put it very bluntly, I'm a judge and I'm not in a position to decide on somebody's sex. That's a job for somebody else, it's not my job. And therefore I've got no choice but to say that originally April's birth certificate said male and therefore as far as I'm concerned she was a male at the time of marriage and he, he granted this decree of nullity. What this means for the pensions office is hurrah, we've now got a precedent and therefore a policy which is informed by this piece of law. Now something else happened at the same time around the same time. In, in 1975, the National Insurance Contributions Card was abolished. People stopped carrying them. And so it became much less of an issue because if you wanted to prove who you are, you now produce your birth certificate, not your National Insurance Card. So these applications stopped coming in. But they still had the problem, remember, of all these outstanding pensions claims to deal with. And the reason I say intolerant is because of the language that's now being used. Now, this is the apparently enlightened AJA Compton, who's still there, re-application from Miss A, and he says, and I quote, it follows that although the insurance officer probably decided the claim on the basis of A's letter to Dr. Purdy, we must cockle up evidence from other documents on the file to show that Corbett versus Corbett applies. And I've, I've also got a quote here that I didn't put on the slide, but this is, again, AJA Compton about another claimant, a Miss J. It says, she seems vociferous, and transsexual claimants, and now they're calling them transsexuals, transsexual claimants in general show little reticence, get this, particularly since Robin Day's interview with the BBC war correspondent who is now a woman. I think whilst these transgender people were quiet and just accepting of what was happening to them, then everything was okay. But when they started getting stroppy and, uh, and asserting their rights, then it looks like the battle lines were, were being drawn. And this is even more offensive, I think. Again, this is A.J. A. Compton about Miss B. And he's now referring to her as a man, something he's not done before in any of the previous correspondence. I expect this man will make trouble as he has been in skirts. Isn't that wonderful language? So, so Victorian. He's going to make trouble because he's been in skirts and treated by us as a woman for 15 years. However, the law, by virtue of Corbett versus Corbett, is on our, on our side. So Corbett versus Corbett is now the, the, the way in which all these cases are being treated. And they're also using transsexuality all the time now in these accounts. 
and this is a, again AJA Compton, there is some doubt whether the appellant is a transsexual or a transvestite. I think the answer is that in 1960 the medical profession called all men wishing to wear women's clothes transvestites, but decided sometime before 1970, i.e. before Corbett, that, they were, that there were in fact two kinds of psychological abnormality in this field. What I would argue is happening, and, and it, I may have to say this twice to help you get your heads around this. By 1975, there are two categories, transvestite and transsexual. Back in 1950, there was just the transvestite. Now, what they're doing is retroactively or retrospectively arguing those categories existed in 1950, and therefore we could distinguish in 1950 between transsexuals and transvestites. Well, my answer to them is, no, you couldn't, because you didn't. So they're punishing people for a, a, a category that didn't exist when these decisions were being made. And this is one of the reasons why I love Michel Foucault so much, because his argument is you cannot retroactively apply labels. It doesn't work because the meaning of those labels is particular to the time that they're created. His most famous argument is about homosexuals, and he argues that homosexual was brought into being in the 19th century and didn't exist before then. Men were committing buggery and having sex with each other, but they weren't homosexuals. And to use that term in the 1700s, for example, people look at you and say, what are you talking about? Why are you using Latin or Greek words or a mixture, actually, of Greek and Latin? So what this, what this department has done is now retrospectively apply at a category that didn't exist when they originally made their decisions, and that has a devastating effect on the trans community because all of these applications are now thrown out, all of them, without any further argument. Now, the only kind of good bit of news is very recently, in fact, last year, was Christine Timbrell's victory. She had a long, long battle with um, what is now the, in basically, Customs and Inland Revenue and the Department of Works and Pensions. And she changed her gender in, in the year 2000. And she was married. Now, I don't know if you know, but in 2005, the government, after a great deal of pressure, mostly from Europe and the European Court of Human Rights, decided that trans people should be allowed to change the sex on their birth certificates, and we'd never been allowed to do that before. And in 2005, the government introduced an act called the Gender Recognition Act, which enabled us to change our birth certificates. However, there was a catch, and the catch was if you were married, you had to get your marriage annulled before you could change your sex. And the argument is, well, all right, you're saying you've always been a woman. You must have been a woman at the time you got married. Therefore, you married a woman. We don't recognize same-sex marriage. Therefore, you either accept your marriage shouldn't have existed or you remain a man. So Christine was told, well, they either get divorced and then you get your pension or stay married and you wait till 65 before you get your pension. So this was what she was told, and being the person that she was, she decided she wasn't going to just accept that. She was born in 1941, and she wanted her pension backdated to 2001. So she put in her application, and Revenue and Customs National Insurance Contributions Office refused, using Corbett 
really, as their argument of saying Corbett still applies unless you get your marriage annulled. And she said, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to take it all the way through to the Court of Appeal, which she did do. And this is really interesting, this decision, because it overturns Corbett versus Corbett. Because on the 22nd of June 2010, Aikens LJ, Lord Justice Aikens, one of three um, uh, judges at the Court of Appeal who heard this case, he basically said this. The fact there's a lack of a legal, or that there was a lack of a legal framework in 2001 to allow a change of sex was actually a human rights violation. Now, what Christine had said, rather than trying to just claim that she was, um, she was entitled to this pension, she argued that it was actually a failure to, um, uh, to ad adhere to her human rights, the right to a personal life, and the rights of family. And she won the case. And what the judge basically said, contrary to what was said by Ormerod in the Corbett case, was, yes, you have a right to a family life. We don't have a right to force you to get a divorce just so that you can get a pension. You're clearly a woman. You've had surgery. Uh, to all intents and purposes, you've passed as a woman. Who are we to, to sit here and say you're not a woman? And so she won the case. She got a pension and she got it backdated all the way back to 2001. <laughs> <laughs> so what I'm really saying in conclusion is people who imagine that sex and gender are kind of fixed, stable categories that are dependent on law and government are really living in, in, in living an illusion and that these categories of sex and gender are fluid and they shift and they change depending on all kinds of things, depending on the medical opinion, depending on bureaucrats and the decisions they make, depending on different acts of parliament, which are nothing to do with sex. I'm sure when they passed the Pensions Act, they weren't thinking, how might this impact on transsexuals or transvestites? Were they? Sure they weren't. And in fact, it's kind of a lesson for those of us who work in government departments where we make legislation, we enact acts of parliament, one of the things that we used to be required to do was to carry out what were called equality impact assessments, where if we had a feeling that a new act or a new policy or a new piece of legislation might impact on race or sex or disability or sexual orientation or religion and so on, we were required to do an analysis consult with people from different diverse backgrounds and find out how this would impact on them. Now that requirement has gone from the Equality Act, which was passed last year. We no longer have to do that. Most departments still do, but we don't have to anymore. And one of my, what, not so much an argument, but one of the lessons I think we need to learn from this kind of history is that if you want to regulate things like sex and gender more carefully, you're going to have to pay attention to these things. Because if you don't, the regulators become money, treasury, bureaucratic needs, time, the need for a policy, medical opinion, sex is, it's like a ping pong ball being bounced around all these different needs in order to try and establish who somebody is. That's all I have to say, thank you. <laughs>